This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Unicoin, a next-generation, equity-backed, and dividend-paying cryptocurrency designed to address the extreme volatility of traditional tokens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ziva Brandstetter, accountability and investigative editor at the Washington Post. Today, we'll be joined by two guests for conversations about cryptocurrency and the regulatory landscape. First, we'll hear from Leah Wald. She's CEO of Valkyrie Investments. Leah, welcome to Washington Post Live. Ziva, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Um, I, I want to remind our audience that we want to hear from you as well. So please tweet questions to Washington Post Live at Post Live, and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Leah, I wanted to just start off by talking about the technology that underpins uh, cryptocurrency, because I think a lot of people don't understand it. So can you talk a little bit about what the blockchain is and how it relates to cryptocurrency in general? Sure, absolutely. And um, there's quite a lot to unpack there. You know, first of all, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do try to separate blockchain and Bitcoin. Um, but obviously, in regards to the technology, you know, this is this is one and the same. There's been a lot of projects that have subsequently been built uh, as blockchain projects, whether they're centralized or, you know, in uh, other decentralized veins. But uh, Bitcoin was the penultimate that brought this into creation, uh, including the Bitcoin blockchain, which underpins as the technology of the cryptocurrency. Great. Thank you for that answer. Um, and sort of building on that, you hear a lot of talk in the crypto world about DeFi, uh, decentralized finance. Can you tell me uh, what that means and what the benefits are of decentralized finance are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so decentralized finance has definitely taken more of a broader role, especially recently with what's called DeFi tokens and Uh, other types of projects, again, that have more interesting rules. Uh, And by those rules, I mean technological code rules whereby you can, as an example, stake. Uh, You can uh, really engage in these more decentralized exchanges and ecosystems. Um, I would say that, you know, Bitcoin was the first decentralized financial instrument. Um, It is a decentralized blockchain. uh, And ever since then, there have been other projects that have been built, uh, whether they are considered DeFi tokens or they are within the Bitcoin blockchain and therefore within that decentralized financial ecosystem that uh, really take away from uh, what we would consider to be the, the rules and norms of traditional finance. Good point. So how does this world and and cryptocurrency address some of the weaknesses that proponents of cryptocurrency have pointed out of our current financial system? Definitely many. I mean, Bitcoin was born because of a desire to see a different world. It was born right after the financial crisis and uh, the original inventor being Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, obviously a pseudonym, uh, put into the Genesis block the headline of, uh, of the time of bailouts. So it really was to counteract the different issues that we do see in traditional finance. But moving forward, due to some of the pillars in Bitcoin of immutability, of uh, permissionless value transfer, of uh, instantaneous 
uh, oftentimes value transfer. You really are able to do a lot more than what can be very cumbersome in the traditional financial industry. Uh, again, whether it's you know overruling much in the remittances industry and how long it can take for remittances to go through and bank wires, uh, the expenses around bank wires, you know, much of this is again instantaneous uh, on the Bitcoin and other blockchains. And a lot of other projects are trying to solve for uh, a variety of nuances, you know, there in between. You have some blockchains that are focused on security token offerings. Uh, so very specifically trying to work with ensuring that security offerings are, are done in a in a compliant and also a more frictionless manner that provides more opportunities for the greater public. Um, you know, there's just a lot being done that's trying to uh, push back against what have just been becoming very, very cumbersome from a technological perspective with brokers or with the wires and platforms, or again, uh, just providing more openness and availability for uh, participants that potentially never had an opportunity to participate in the past. Uh, and this isn't evading any issues or not KYC AML. This really is just participants who potentially didn't know how to engage in the financial system. We obviously saw a very interesting situation with GameStop and uh, all the different Reddit traders and and uh, Robinhood traders. And it's obviously very apparent that there are many individuals who want to join the traditional finance system, but have not been able to in the past. So I think cryptocurrency is in that manner from a trading or speculative or investing, uh, whatever you know manner is, is in alignment with your thesis provides a really great opportunity to do so. You, you make a great point about the increasing number of people being able to invest in a digital marketplace with cryptocurrency, and we're seeing that in the numbers. But is it wise for people to try to practically use uh, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, and if so, where and how can they use them given the volatility? Yeah, we do. And I think that that's a really good question and a, and a nuanced question, actually. If you look at um, one element, you're talking about volatility on another element, I actually would like to step back and maybe talk about Biden's recent executive order. You know, this was actually very, you know, highly anticipated and came largely as expected, but no rules or laws were put into place. And the verbiage showed a clear directive, though, to the various government agencies that oversee our financial sector to both learn more about digital assets and also look for ways to work together to regulate the industry in a manner that fosters innovation rather than stifling growth. You know, there was a lot of language that was inclusive of a CBDC, which is a central bank digital currency. And I think that's important because it's a recognition that we will eventually need a digital dollar to be able to compete on a global scale with other countries such as China, Japan, and yes, even Russia that are developing digital currencies of their own. So, you know, I think it was a good learning experience for the various agencies that oversee our monetary system, since it will likely be an opportunity to, to collaborate with other regulators to help them understand how digital assets work and how our industry interacts with them. So I think that that's a very positive direction for at least the regulators in Washington to start getting their hands around 
uh, this industry and also to regulate it in a way, to your point, uh, that's comfortable for both the institutional and retail public. Great, thank you for that answer. You know, Bitcoin and Ether make up about 63% of the market. Um, then there are these meme coins, Dogecoin and, and, and so on. There are tens of thousands of different cryptocurrencies. So how do you advise investors to choose which cryptocurrencies to invest in? It's a very good question. And it's definitely something that we try to educate on and think about every single day because we do have single asset products, but we also have diversified uh, multi-protocol uh, products. So it's very important that we are discerning. Many of these projects do need to be looked at with a fine tooth comb and definitely a very powerful magnifying glass. Uh, I think that there's a, very, a, a good amount of projects and alternative currencies that have stand-up teams, that have very powerful engines behind them that uh, are incredible and we will see, you know, continue to grow and develop. Um, but you're absolutely right, there's a lot of coins. Um, I think what's important though to note from an investor protection standpoint is that most of the coins that you're you know, potentially alluding to or speaking about that are maybe harmful to investors are usually not listed or promoted by some of the more uh, regulated exchanges here in the United States and definitely not in products that, as an example, the SEC has passed, right? Um, they have only to date passed uh, one of our Bitcoin futures ETFs, and then uh, ProShares and VanEck also have a Bitcoin futures ETF. So I think that when wrapping your head around the numerous different coins, it's important to look at, of course, market cap, the top contenders, Bitcoin, Ether, et cetera, um, but also just generally the various ecosystem participants that are regulated by a variety of regulators, what coins are they working with? What coins are they promoting? And therefore also just, you know, providing even restrictions around. And I think that that's a good way to uh, wrap your head around which ones are important. And I do think that more regulation will be coming, you know, down the pike uh, from the SEC and, and from other various regulators. As you know, Leah, there are critics of this world who say, for example, that <clears throat> digital tokens and cryptocurrency reminds them of a Ponzi scheme, that there's no intrinsic value. Uh, you buy a stock of a share of Apple, you know, there's, there are real products behind that. How, how do you answer that, that it might be a Ponzi scheme or like going to the casino? <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. The fundamentals are very clear. Um, I think previously it was a little more difficult to discern the fundamentals behind some of the cryptocurrencies. Um, and you had to look more at the technicals and maybe have a little bit better of a technical understanding yourself of what you're looking at. But at this point, um, many of the companies are, as an example, if you look at you know, we have a miners ETF. The, the miners that are listed within this equities ETF are publicly listed. All their financial statements are just the same as Apple or Microsoft, right? And when it comes to some of the coins, you can also see financial statements and see who's behind it. Um, but there is a very negative uh, uh, understanding or belief, I should say, on the Hill. I mean, just weeks ago, Representative Himes, who's going to be on next, said on Capitol Hill that despots, terrorists, and money launderers are benefiting from unregulated crypto. You know, there hasn't been any evidence of this so far. So, you know, we'd welcome for him to present it 
if he has any proof that this activity is occurring, definitely we as an industry would love nothing more to eliminate these bad actors from the ecosystem. You know, I, there's uh, there's this wonderful gentleman, uh, Henerod at Solidus Labs, that said sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think that that's true. You know, that kind of goes into what a lot of people and media are talking about right now, which is very important on sanction invasion as well, which again, you know, anecdotally, we aren't seeing the evidence of sanctioned oligarchs, financial firms, or the Russian government using digital assets on any meaningful scale to get around these restrictions currently in place. You know, unlike the traditional financial sector, all digital asset transactions are publicly viewable on an immutable blockchain. And there are various monitoring services also that scan for such activity to alert authorities and others in the event of potentially nefarious activity. So, you know, we would notice larger asset movements on the blockchain, which anyone can see. It's far easier to hide cash, which is the truth. You know, so no sanctioned invaders, you know, would be able to even perform this because you would also need a fiat off ramp to convert their digital assets into cash. So to your point, I think broad spectrum um, there's many ways to discern whether you're looking at the fundamentals of a company, uh, the fundamentals of a project, or again, even trying to extrapolate it further beyond Ponzi schemes into nefarious activity that is just a misunderstood narrative. That's a really interesting point. The other side of that coin, right, of the skeptics is uh, the enthusiasm that, that has built up around crypto. You saw mm. it in the Super Bowl ads. Uh, you see celebrity endorsements. You see arenas being named after um, people in this industry, after companies in this industry. So, talk a little bit about that. What do you attribute that just sudden? You know, it's everywhere. And are investors in danger of getting swept up in that enthusiasm and possibly um, spending money they don't have to lose? I, I think the enthusiasm is fantastic. I obviously really enjoyed some of these Super Bowl ads. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think that we need to be concerned. Uh, right now about investors getting swept up given all the information that you're able to get, which is completely on par with what information you would get if you were trading, let's say a micro cap coin, uh, sorry, a micro cap uh, stock on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. You're still getting the same, sorry? No, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, I heard something in the background. Um, so you're still getting the same information. You know, again, I think that is evident in, you know, even what's being done with the SEC. You know, over the course of our conversations with the regulator, it became clear to us that there is a willingness for such a product to exist regarding, you know, a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, and that right now, officials weren't comfortable putting an unregulated product in a regulated wrapper. So Chairman Gensler, Gensler recently publicly stated his desire for digital asset exchanges to be regulated similarly to traditional exchanges such as NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, which we think makes total sense. Uh, to your point about enthusiasm and getting wrapped up, again, I think much of this is going to come from Washington and ensuring that those investor protections are put in place, but we definitely do believe that the information is already available for that to be so. You know, there's already current securities regulations such as the Howey test that we believe are more than adequate for the supervision of digital assets and informing investor protection measures. And we're happy to work within those guardrails and hope exchanges join us as well. Um, so in regards to fun Super Bowl ads and lots of different stadiums, you know, I think that's a testament actually to our industry growing. 
uh, we have to remember that this is a very nascent asset class and only recently did institutions and also governments start stepping up as really, you know, opening the door to creating their own strategies and also buying. So there's been a huge boom over just the past year. Not only will you see it in price, but when you see it in venture capital dollars, when you see it in terms of the major banks explicitly talking about crypto strategies and or even including the ability to custody. So I think that there's also just generally a adoption that's taking place and therefore these companies are able to, uh, to have a good time, you know, picking, picking Super Bowl ads. Right. Yeah, there's also been a lot of attention to the environmental impact of this industry, the incredible power use that some of these uh, technologies uh, employ. Can you talk a little bit about that issue and how is the industry able to mitigate that? I mean, I think consumers want to know that if they're investing in this um, technology that they're not going to be contributing to uh, global warming, for example. Yeah, we actually think that that's a misunderstood narrative. Um, that we very much try to educate against. Uh, we do have a Bitcoin miners ETF that specifically utilizes 77% renewable energy. Um, I think what's misunderstood is the renewable energy element of what's actually in those the energy matrix for Bitcoin mining. So to your point, uh, a lot of media sources and individuals like to cite that Bitcoin mining uses an exorbitant amount of energy consumption. Um, but again, to, to push back, uh, not entirely true and especially not on a relative scale. And also, again, when you look into uh, that grid. So, um, you know, some statistics, you know, widely uh, recognized estimates for Bitcoin mining energy consumption actually sit closer to 0.27% of global, global energy consumption. That's from Cambridge, even though many like to compare it to the GDP of a country. You know, Bitcoin mining only accounts for 0.05% of all electricity waste. And this consumption is really half the amount used by global banking or gold industries. But when it comes to miners, you know, and energy usage, as the network grows, it does use more energy. However, it also becomes significantly more efficient as the technology improves. And I think that that's the core element here. So even, you know, Brian Brooks, who is the former head of the OCC, was recently, uh, at, uh, he was a, a witness at the congressional hearing, and he pointed out that 58% of Bitcoin mining was sustainably sourced last year. And that's versus 31% of the U.S. grid sustainably sourced in 2021. So that's, that's huge, right? You know, lowest electricity cost always comes from excess capacity. So that's why you see Bitcoin miners have largely relocated to the United States and especially New York, Texas, Washington and other states that, you know, have a lot of clean energy. So you see solar, wind, hydroelectric sources are all very powerful uh, and popular. Miners are also using energy source from orphan natural gas wells, which has been very popular recently. Um, so. You know, in some, you know, there has been a catalyst for clean energy development because of miners' willingness to embrace these energy sources due to them largely being lower cost than fossil fuels and also because of the negative uh, media image, which, again, you know, has promoted a positive in this. So I think that, you know, we're only going to see more development of utilizing renewable energy. And therefore, I think that argument becomes a bit bunk in, a, in you know, in a, in a way, but I, it, obviously it's still up to us in the industry to ensure that mining standards are pivoting towards the renewable energy sector.
Great. Thank you so much, Leah. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. We're um, about out of time today, but I really appreciate your um, thoughtful discussion today of these issues. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. And next, we have Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut, who's going to talk about the regulatory landscape of cryptocurrency. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt, and today we're talking about the evolution of cryptocurrency. The global digital currency market is already valued at roughly $1.85 trillion. But along with crypto's rise comes risk and uncertainty. To discuss the future of crypto, I'm joined by Mo Vela. He's the executive producer of the show Unicorn Hunters. Mo, great to have you. Great to be with you, Elise. Thanks for having me. Now, you've called crypto the greatest wealth disruptor of our time, but I think the concept is still a bit of an enigma to many of us. So talk to us about your take on the current state of the market. Well, I think it's evolving, Elise. As in all things in life, it's evolving, right? right? And it's still, as you point out, relatively new to a lot of people. Only 16% of Americans are trading and exchanging in crypto. But it is here to say, stay, and it's the new frontier, and it's the next generation of, of currency, in my opinion. So the current state is it's evolving. Uh, I think there are benefits, tremendous benefits, but there are also tremendous risks. Uh, and uh, some challenges and obstacles lie ahead. Now, we've talked about how the there's a lot of volatility and risk. So talk to us about how the market is responding to that. Well, I think let's first of all identify the, the, the risks, right? Uh, we see a lack of transparency. We see this anonymity, right? And we see a decentralization. All of them, somebody could argue, have benefits and have positive impact. But by the same token, the market is reacting because those also have some risks. One of the risks we're seeing is the ability of Russia, for example, to circumvent sanctions using crypto because of those uh, dynamics I just mentioned. So we've got to start mitigating those risks, in my opinion. We've got to start addressing those challenges. Uh, we've got to close those loopholes. Uh, it behooves the crypto industry to do that. And I think the market is reacting, and that's why you see the, the kind of ebb and flow, the roller coaster of Bitcoin and others uh, because of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, uh, inflation, and other dynamics. Right. And we've also seen how the Ukrainians are using crypto for good, kind of getting using um, taking crypto donations uh, because it's easier yep. and quicker to access those funds. Now, let's talk about Unicorn Hunters. That's a show that attempts to democratize access to yeah. investing, and now the producers have created Unicoin. It's a new coin in that mold. So talk to us about this next generation coin, Unicoin, and how it's different from the early coins. Well, you know, the, the underlying premise of Unicorn Hunters was always to create access, right? As you mentioned, right. to uh, access to the democratization, right. Uh, right? For people to have uh, access to the investment ecosystem, if you will, right? And that meant everybody. And so in furtherance of that objective and that vision and mission, we've launched Unicoin because it's a natural progression uh, toward creating that type of access. So now we launched Unicoin, it's in pre-sell, we hope to mint in 2023. Uh, and for the first time, you'll be able to actually invest in a crypto 
securitized coin that will actually be used to uh, create a global innovation fund, Elise, Elise, excuse me, and that those funds, these global innovation funds, will be investing in emerging growth companies in various sectors. So with Unicoin, when you buy Unicoin, in essence, you are getting a sliver of a portfolio of emerging growth companies, of an equity stake, I should say, in these emerging growth companies. You get to watch them. It's all transparent. It's centralized. It's completely, completely available to everybody. And so I'm excited about that. And also, I think it has the kind of transparency and 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 like lower risk than you're talk than we've talked about. So, talk to us about the future of crypto and what we should be looking for. Well, I think you're going to see more like Unicoin, right? Asset backed, dividend paying, minimizing the risk, mitigating the risks, right? And so, I think you're going to see more like ours, right? Where you have transparency, we have mitigative. Uh, systems in place. It's centralized in the private sector. I am not suggesting I'm advocating for centralization in the public sector. That's a whole nother discussion for people that are much more expert than I am. Uh, but in the in the private sector, this centralization, I think, is going to be a positive uh, impact. And it's we're already subject to regulatory environments, so we don't fear the president's executive order and any uh, regulation that might result from that. That's what I think the future of crypto looks like. Centralized, transparent, mitigative uh, efforts in place to mitigate the risks like Unicoin. Um, and I think uh, subject to regulation of some kind, at least. Yeah, well, as you say, crypto is here to stay, and it's important to make sure that investors are protected from the volatility and risk as this new digital currency is in incorporated into global financial markets. Mo Vela, former senior advisor to then-Vice President Biden and executive producer of Unicorn Hunters, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me, Elise. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And if you're just joining us, I'm Ziva Brandstetter, investigative and accountability editor at the Washington Post. Today, I'd like to introduce our next guest, Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut. Representative Himes is on the House Financial Services Committee. And before that, he spent 12 years at Goldman Sachs. So he is perfectly positioned to talk to us today about cryptocurrency and the regulatory landscape. Representative Himes, welcome to Washington Post Live. Ziva, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I do want to remind our audience that we want to hear from you as well. And we've had a question from one of our Twitter users already. So if you want to pose questions or your thoughts for our guest, please tweet at Post Live and we'll try to get to those. Uh, Congressman, can you talk a little bit about the uh, what you were talking about in that spot, the executive order that just came out and, and the need for regulation? Um, President Biden issued an order that appeared to be just sort of a directive to many federal agencies to get ready to make a plan. What are your thoughts on it? And uh, the, can you sort of talk about the most important points of it? Yeah, yeah, you know, as as you sensed from my little clip there in the Financial Services Committee, the the, the time is now for us to start uh, floating proposals um, around regulating cryptocurrencies. That's not a terribly controversial statement, right? Most of the players in the cryptocurrency market would agree that it's time to establish some uh, federal uh, baseline regulation so that people understand the rules. And um, you know, uh, it's it, the time is now because I think. Um, 
we're at a point now where the problems in cryptocurrency are going to get bigger, right? I don't worry too much about systemic risk for something that where the market cap is, you know, roughly two trillion is fragmented, but we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. I saw a stat the other day that, you know, 40% of the American public had had some form of investment in cryptocurrency. And by the way, um, you know, the innovations, and I, I will, we'll have a long conversation about what the innovation is going to actually look like, but the innovations in order to move forward in this country will benefit from a clear uh, and uniform federal standard. Now, I'm not saying we're going to get there necessarily this year. There's a long process of education. Um, there's a long process of legislating that needs to occur. But but now is the time for us to move from this educational phase of understanding what in the world of cryptocurrency is, which, you know, uh, two years ago would have drawn a lot of blank stares around here to actually putting forward policy proposals. Great. And one of our uh, Twitter followers wants to know about the energy usage. I, I asked our last guest, Leah Wald, about this as well. What's your take on how we can mitigate the environmental impact of uh, Bitcoin mining and of this technology? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I, I serve on the Financial Services Committee. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I have sort of a good policy answer to that question, right? I mean, to me, it's 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 really disturbing um, that this new technology, uh, you know, for reasons that don't strike me as essential to the technology. I mean, I think I have a reasonable understanding of of crypto mining. You know, are apparently consuming the same amount of energy as a you know medium-sized European country. That's a real problem uh, if you believe in climate change. And I understand that some of the you know crypto uh, innovators are thinking about uh, new ways to mine that are less energy intensive. But uh, again, from a policy standpoint, I'm not sure there's anything that Washington, D.C. is going to do to fix that problem in contrast to the area of going after fraud, of you know making sure that if Americans are investing their retirement funds in these things, that there are certain standards. That's an area where I think Congress is likely to be a lot more active. Great. And you, um, you bring us to Congress and its role. It seems to me that support for this industry doesn't really fall neatly along party lines. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, um, among your colleagues on Capitol Hill, how support for cryptocurrency and sort of leaving it alone and letting it do its thing, um, how does that break down along party lines? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, I don't think it's really a party issue. Um, you know, each individual uh, tribe, if you will, in the Congress has a slightly different take on crypto. But no, I don't think there's a party uh, uh, breakdown. Look, I think on both sides of the aisle, there is um, skepticism, a lot of skepticism. I think on both sides of the aisle, there's an appreciation for the innovative possibilities. I think there's appreciation for the downside and some of the bad uses it could be put for. To me, it feels a little like the early 90s around the internet. You know, I was just sort of becoming professionally involved with the world in the early 90s. And if you'd sort of ask somebody in the early 90s, you know, what, what are going to be the, 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 you know, the killer apps of the, of the internet, um, I'm not sure anybody necessarily would have predicted. What we do know is that there will be massive successes and there will be massive failures. Uh, and what we really want to do as a Congress is insulate people uh, from the worst of, you know, fraud, uh, lack of disclosure, that kind of thing. What I would tell you, though, just to provide maybe a slightly more interesting thing, where I think the big fight is, um, is between the libertarian camp that sees anonymity as sort of a core value. You know, here's an opportunity to have a payment system or a, you name it, a system in which anonymity, the government can't get at who you are, 
uh, with all of the attractions that that may have for somebody of a libertarian bent, with the fact that anonymity, of course, is a is a real tool um, for some pretty uh, ugly actors. I think that's where the fight is going to be uh, inside the Congress. How much do we require um, that wallets uh, are ultimately the identity behind a wallet or the ownership behind a token is ultimately discernible by you know either law enforcement or the or the Treasury or what have you? I think that's where the fight's going to be. And a good point. Building on that, you proposed um, a, a bill, a 21st Century Currency Act last year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and again, bipartisan. Um, you know, that's one of the concerns that we have around here that I actually think is probably not, you know, a near-term concern. Um, you know, we would like the dollar to remain the uh, international reserve currency. Um, if you're Chinese, you don't agree with that. If you're European, maybe you don't agree with it. But obviously, immense benefits accrue to the United States by having the dollar be the predominant reserve currency. So we do want to watch the development of cryptocurrencies from that standpoint. You know, I, I don't worry too much, right? In the sense that if you if you are using dollars for a you know as a reserve, um, you do that because your trade is in dollars. You do that because you trust the full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, those people aren't. Gonna and all of a sudden wake up one morning and say, oh, well, really what we need to do is move our, you know, 500 billion in reserves into Dogecoin or Bitcoin or what have you. And, and to that point, do you think the U.S. needs a digital dollar to bolster its reserves? There have been studies by the Fed. There have been uh, Treasury Department reports. Um, it seems like we're inching closer to that. Well, what's your take on whether we need a central bank digital currency in the U.S.? Yeah, great, great question, and one I should have the answer to because my subcommittee on the Financial Services Committee actually has jurisdictions over over a central bank digital currency. Uh, I, I, I'm a yes on that, um, you know, and I, and you know, I know, I know, a lot, there are lots of countries out there sort of experimenting uh, with the concept of a of a central bank digital currency. Um, yes, I, I am a believer, and I, in fact, am working on a white paper right now on what we think a U.S. Cent, uh, central bank digital currency uh, should yeah. look like. I, I think if nothing else, it's a it's a good complement to the banking system as a payment mechanism. It could be a lot less frictional uh, than the banking system. The banks, of course, are going to have uh, some concerns about that fact. But but I think um, I think it's easier to say that we should have a central bank digital currency than it is to be necessarily a huge proponent of a of a privately backed stablecoin. Not to say that stablecoins are a bad idea, but I, I but to answer your question, yes, I think a U.S. digital currency would be a good idea. Great. And we have a Twitter question from Diana Souza who asks, should we get the Department of Education involved in creating a curriculum for, for students to sort of teach them about cryptocurrency and, uh, you know, get our young people trained up on, on this technology? So I, I think the answer to that question is yes. I mean, I don't know if the Federal Department of Education is the, is the one to do it, but, you know, let, let me answer that in two ways. Um, a lot of the consumer risk associated with cryptocurrency is not unique to cryptocurrency, right? Um, you know, uh, if, you have a, if you have a stable coin that looks like a currency because it's backed by a dollar, you should think of that as a dollar, perhaps with a little bit more risk depending on the nature of the stable coin. But, you know, from a, you know, an investment standpoint, you know, hey, think in classical terms about how much of your retirement 
uh, funds you expose to Bitcoin, to pick one. Highly, highly volatile, highly speculative. You probably shouldn't be sliding 100% of those retirement funds uh, into Bitcoin, you know, last couple of years, performance notwithstanding, right? So so my point is that, uh, you know, we, we could do an awful lot better job with financial literally, literacy generally. And yes, I do think that any training on financial literacy today has to include some uh, consideration of, uh, of cryptocurrencies. It might also involve um, training members of Congress. You've said in the past that this is an issue um, that uh, I, I guess I want to ask, how well equipped do you think members of Congress are to really understand the nuances of these regulatory issues um, surrounding a highly technical uh, you know, industry? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't say this all too often, but I will tell you that I'm very proud, actually, of the United States Congress's, uh, you know, sort of take up of the issue and, and topic of crypto cryptocurrencies in the last couple of years. We've avoided putting it into the meat grinder of partisan fighting, right? I mean, what you have today is you've got, you know, let's call it several dozen members in the House of Representatives and maybe a slightly smaller number in the Senate of people who've really invested a lot of time understanding the risks, the possibilities. There's been lots of interaction um, between the Congress and people like Gary Gensler over at the SEC, lots of entrepreneurs uh, who have sat in this office and in other offices. So I actually am proud of the Congress's uh, process of self-education. Again, five years ago, if you'd said the word cryptocurrency, a very small percentage of uh, federal lawmakers would have recognized what that is. And you're starting to see proposals now, right? Over in the Senate, you've got uh, you know people as diverse in their political views as uh, Senator Cynthia Lummis and Senator Elizabeth Warren putting forward proposals. Similar things here in the House. And that's that's a good thing, right? Because that's going to focus our attention on specific proposals proposals uh, and move the ball forward. Great. Um, can you talk, though, about the real risks from a national security standpoint of cryptocurrency? Our last guest made a, a great point that, um, interestingly, it's anonymous, yet it's traceable. The, there have been some law enforcement uh, advances and in that, um, but what do you think the actual risks are to our national security from cryptocurrency and, and these digital currencies? Yeah, I mean, again, they sort of center around anonymity. Um, and, you know, that's not a radically new concept, right? Cash itself is uh, anonymous. Um, and uh, so it's not a radically new concept. And and we do need to be mindful here because, yes, the, the, the underlying distributed ledger in many cases is available for review. And in fact, law enforcement has taken advantage of that fact. But of course, there are technologies out there that are trying to stymie that fact that are, you know, trying to basically cloud the trail. Uh, on, uh, on any given ledger. So we need to be very mindful of the fact that if you do have true anonymity, uh, you know, guess what? It will be those people. It won't just be libertarians who like ideologically the idea of anonymity. It will be the terrorists. It will be, you know, Russians or Iranians or North Koreans seeking to bypass sanctions. Um, and that's why I think there's going to be, um, you know, a, a serious policy argument around the notion of whether, uh, you know, uh, whether uh, nations should tolerate, support uh, a truly anonymous cryptocurrency. Uh, on to that point, what do you think the likelihood is that there will be some actual regulation of uh, this industry in in the current session, and what do you think that it'll involve? Well, I don't I don't think you're going to see um, legislation passed in this Congress. I mean, we've got what nine months, ten months left of this Congress, and an election to go. That tends to be a little distracting. Um, but you know. Uh, 
uh, I, talking as I do to cryptocurrency players, I mean, they're paying very close attention to the regulators, right? So, you know, the SEC in particular has been uh, enormously active. Um, people will know, of course, of the $100 million fine last month uh, leveled against BlockFi, a lending platform. We haven't talked a lot about lending and leverage and reserves. That's obviously a very real interest to people who worry about the stability of the financial system. You know, and you saw this month, actually, the, the I guess the penalties levied on um, John and uh, Tina Barksdale uh, for what was fraudulent activity. So, um, you know, again, I'm not uncomfortable that we've got the Wild West going out on out there. Uh, if you talk to crypto players who are building businesses, they're saying, hey, we're being very careful. We not we don't we don't wind up with a, you know, with a, a, a nine digit fine to the SEC. What we would really appreciate was was better clarity. And and, you know, I sadly don't think that that's likely to emerge in law from this Congress. But I do think we're getting there. I mean, it's not it's not, I think, crazy to imagine that in the next two or three years, Congress will um, uh, provide guidance on on regulation on things like a central bank digital currency and, and associated issues. Yeah, so so that talks about Congress's role and what, what you think is proper. But where do you think the Fed fits into all this? Um, it seems like there's maybe some mixed signals uh, in terms of who's going to take the lead in regulating this industry. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, you know, and, and there's sort of two ways you can answer it. You can try to answer it using kind of legacy thinking, which is, well, gosh, if a stable coin looks like a, uh, you know, looks like a commodity, it should be uh, uh, regulated by the CFTC. If it looks like a security, it uh, it looks it should be the SEC. There's actually, and I'm not sure I'm ready to validate this thinking, but there is actually a proposal out there that, you know, this is different enough that it deserves its own regulator. I'm not, re I'm not quite ready to sign on to that as being exactly the right idea, but um, you know, I, th I think there's merits to that argument. At the end of the day, look, um, the Federal Reserve, the the uh, the SEC, the the CFTC, they they really have two categories of concern. One is systemic risk, and you know, as the as the market cap and as the size of DeFi grows, and as we start to see products that involve leverage particularly as those products that involve leverage may or may not intersect with the banking system. Now, all of a sudden, my antennas start to waggle a little bit. And I say, now, wait a second. Are we getting to a point where there might be systemic risk? Um, systemic risk tends to bite us from, from directions that we don't necessarily see it coming. And then, of course, there's investor protection. Um, you know, uh, there will be stories of people who lose an awful lot of money uh, in uh, uh, in cryptocurrencies, maybe maybe not immediately, um, but uh, you know we do want to continue to go after fraud, and we do want to make sure that as pe more and more people invest in cryptocurrencies, that they really have some sense of what it precisely it is that they're investing. In. So I think those are the two big areas where some combination of you know SEC, CFTC, and the Federal Reserve will will appropriately focus. It's very interesting. What about the global situation? We have countries like El Salvador choosing. Uh, cryptocurrency as like their official currency. Uh, we have China, which is bandit. Um, it seems like countries are sort of all over the map. Do you think there's a need for greater, greater global uh, cooperation? And, and what would that look like if so? Well, in, in, in all financial regulation, you know, all, all financial markets are global. So the answer to that is a, is a pretty easy yes. And, and, and by the way, it's, um, you know, it, it, there's a particular regulatory challenge um, with cryptocurrency because at the end of the day, a cryptocurrency business is, is, is nothing but a bunch of software running on a bunch of servers, which can be anywhere. Um, you know, there's no need necessarily for uh, brick and mortar uh, presence, that sort of thing. So, you know, 
those who believe this whole problem should just go away, and they're few and far between in the Congress, but those who believe that we should just outlaw crypto or whatever they might imagine, you know, this isn't going to happen. This is a, this you know doesn't require the United States permission to move forward. Um, but uh, but 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 yeah, um, uh, you know, we are going to be presented with some uh, with some new and 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 different issues. And uh, so, last question. Um, how how you you don't predict legislation this year um obviously it's an election year it's a um, maybe volatile issue but what do you see in the next couple of years down the road for this industry in terms of re the regulatory situation and congress's role well i think one big question um is does does a cryptocurrency evolve into a legitimate payment system? To me, that's the mm. question. I mean, I know the idea behind Bitcoin and all of the other uh, other you know stable coins, et cetera, is that they should be payment system. But let, let's let's face it, right? I mean, people are are buying this stuff not because it's easy to spend at the local Walmart, but because uh, largely speaking, it's a, uh, a an investment, right? And um, you know, in, in the trend, if you look at the price of Bitcoin, just to pick one over time, is is you know a lot of people have made a lot of money. That will not contribute continue forever. But I think one of the most interesting questions is is will one of the stable coins get enough traction to be a legitimate medium of exchange? Because you know, and, and until then, this is sort of you, you think of you think of these um, these as investments more than anything else, and you maybe worry about that from a standpoint of you know the proverbial widows and orphans and that kind of thing. But um, uh, you know, to me, that's a really interesting question. And then the other really interesting question is. Um, uh, you know, where do we come out on this question of anonymity and what sort of authorities will uh, will the Treasury Department or the FBI uh, or the NSA have to uh, get at the identities behind people who are uh, trading, uh, you know, the identities behind wallets? Great. Well, that's just a fast. This has been a fascinating conversation today, Representative Himes. We're going to have to leave it there for now. But I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.